0: We thank you that we can gather around your word this morning. We thank you we've been able to sing praises to your great and holy name this morning. We thank you we've been able to pray and bring our requests and petitions to you. We thank you that you will answer our prayers above and beyond our expectation to the honor and the glory of your great and holy name. We thank you that we have your word and we've been able to read it together. But now as we come to this part of our time before you, we ask Almighty God that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to us through me as your mouthpiece this morning. May the Holy Spirit fill me and enable me to communicate the message that you would have us to hear. And Almighty God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be with each one of us this morning as we hear your word. May our hearts be ready to hear it. May you meet each and every one of us at our point of need and may the word explode into our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. And may we not just be blessed as we hear your word now, but as we go into the week and the months ahead, may your word continue to take root in our lives and may it change us and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ and may it be used to bring glory to your name. And May it really be of an eternal benefit to us And may it lift your name on high. So, Almighty God, we ask that you would enable what we can't. Keep us from all distractions. Help us to focus on what we're doing now. And may your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're going through this series. And within the series, we've got this mini-series. This mini-series on spiritual gifts in chapters... 12, 13, and 14. We're now in 13. We're in this uh, chapter of love. But we're seeing this in the context of the book of Corinthians and seeing this very much in the context of spiritual gifts. So often we've been seduced into thinking that these wonderful ditties on love are just for weddings, just for Instagrammable quotes, just for feeling good. But I don't think the Corinthians would have really enjoyed these verses that we've been looking at last week and this week. I think when this song was read to them, they would have been convicted. They would have been convicted of their own lack of love. And they would have realized that the clanging gong and the crashing cymbal and that the nothing and gaining nothing was where they were at. Because of their obsession for spiritual gifts, they had been loveless. And as this song was read out, as they heard of the the beauty of love, it was like looking in a mirror. And looking in this mirror, they saw a reflection. And as they looked against themselves and their own life, and Christ's, God's holy standard of what love should be like, They realized that they themselves were not up to that mark. There was lovelessness amongst the Corinthians. And and last week, as we started looking deeper into this song, as we started looking deeper into these verses from 4 to the beginning of 8, as we looked at this perfect love, as we saw this perfect love and saw it in Christ's life, I imagine that you, like the Corinthians, were feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Imagine you, like the Corinthians, were feeling awkward, feeling that something was, was not right. And as we discussed last week's sermon on Zoom, it was apparent to to us that many people that were here last Sunday were were challenged by the fact, challenged by the fact that love is patient and kind. And love does not envy or boast. That was where we were looking last week. And what I want to, to remind us all as we see this, despite our failing to love like this song describes, despite the outworking of our love being nothing close to Christ's perfect example, because of Christ's saving work on the cross, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit as our salvation, because of our salvation, the Holy Spirit poured out God's love into our hearts, although we fail at loving like this patient and kind being that we should be although we fail with envy and boast what we have to remember that this song isn't just to be seen as a rod to beat us with but we should see this song and be challenged by it yes but we should also see it as an inspiration and a reminder of this kind of love and this kind of love is possible is possible through Christ who strengthens us. It's possible because Christ died on the cross to purchase us and redeem us. It's possible because Christ loved us before we were born, before this world began. We've been loved with an everlasting love. And this love has been poured out into our hearts and our lives. So friend, as we feel challenged by these verses and we should and we must, we also must remind ourselves that this is possible. This love is possible. This love is what we should be attaining. This love is what we should be known for. This love is what Christ's people should be like. And for 2,000 years, God has been working in this world through his people. And one of the primary ways of that is when the world has looked on and seen God's people. They've seen love for one another. And they've scratched their heads. And it's been attractive and it's been special and it's drawn people into the family of God. I can thank God that on many occasions when I'm interviewing people for for membership here and chatting with them and I ask them, why do you want to join with LPC? So often that they, they speak in the terms of it's like a family, that they know that love. And brothers and sisters, we should be thankful for that. But we should demand and want more of ourselves And that's why we need to keep going back to God's standard. And that's why we need to keep going back to this passage and see it as it is. And see what we should be like. And if we want the spiritual gifts to be an active part of our life, then we can only have that if we are in love. Walking in love. Having this love. You see, the Corinthians were getting it all wrong because they had in their minds that the the, the only way that that Christian faith should be manifest was through spiritual gifts. And they were getting all excited, particularly with some of the the supernatural gifts, the extraordinary gifts. But Paul brings them to this point, and he brings us to this point, that, that the centerpiece of the Christian faith is not the manifestation of spiritual gifts it's the manifestation of a Christ-like love demonstrated in every aspect of our lives. And, and last week, the, the main point that we started on as we were looking at these first four was that love is an action. Christ has never recorded of saying, I love you. But Christ's whole life was a demonstration of love. A demonstration of patience and kindness, as we saw last week. A demonstration that he did not envy, and he did not boast. And now, this week, we move on from love being patient and kind. We move on from love that does not envy or boast, to it is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. According to the uh, Oxford Dictionary, Uh, The word arrogant is an adjective. An adjective is a, a describing word. And its meaning is to have or to reveal an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or one's own abilities. To be arrogant. To have or to reveal an exaggerated sense of one's own importance and one's own abilities. The the, the original word here that we have is arrogant is also used in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. It might just be worth us going there because this gives us a help to understand what is meant by this arrogant, what Paul was meaning here. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, they were getting concerned about uh, different matters. And he said, I've applied all these things To myself and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. This word arrogant is translated there in that verse six of chapter four of 1 Corinthians as puffed up. Puffed up is quite vivid, isn't it? Have you seen the cockerel that comes out? And he puffs his chest out and he, he makes himself look bigger and he's, he's proud and he's arrogant of himself. Or, or we sometimes see the, the Mercedes draw up or the uh, Range Rovers draw up and, and the, 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 the human peacock gets out and his Armani suit and his flash watch and his entourage and his glasses that could pay for my house and all these different bits and pieces. And there's a, we know that arrogance, don't we? We, we see that arrogance. This... this Versus is used here as puffed up. And, and again, if you go to Collins Dictionary, when, when we describe someone as puffed up, you disapprove of them because they're very proud of themselves and they think they are very important. And so this, this word arrogant, puffed up, could also be translated as being proud. And, and for today, today I'm going to use this, this word proud just generically to help us. So love... Is not proud. Love is not proud, it's not arrogant, it's not puffed up. And, and we have been last week, and as we go through these, uh, what I'm wanting to do is, is to take them to Christ and let's see how we see Christ's love in this. And so, obviously, we, we see no pride in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no pride there whatsoever. And so to to help us see what this means, I want us to to, to look at how Christ showed his love by not being proud. Or maybe it's easier to describe that we are looking at the opposite of being proud. And the opposite of being proud is being humble. And and we see Jesus' pure agape love in his humility. And Jesus was the embodiment of humility. We, we, we mentioned this last week, and the example we used last week was Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus was the teacher. The disciples were the learners. In, in that day and age, the, 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 the teacher had an elevated position, and the disciples would have been those that would gather around his feet. And yet, the, the, the teacher took on the job of the lowest servant, and, and washed his disciples' feet, but the reality is the whole of Christ's ministry is characterized by a lack of pride, a lack of arrogance. And one of the best places that this is described by Paul is in Philippians in chapter two. And so, if you have your Bibles, which you do, or if your devices, please follow with me and go to Philippians chapter two and verse five. And there's this challenge. It says, "Have." This mind yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even... Death on a cross. There's a depth and a majesty and a beauty within these verses that would take many, many sermons and many years to get to hold. Such, such great truth. But the big picture here is Jesus here is humbling himself. And, and Jesus' humility uh, and, and being humble, uh, it, it could be argued that it's very different to ours. As the divine I am, it could be said that he has nothing to be humble about. We, we've got a lot to be humble about. We've got a lot of failings, we've got a lot of faults. Christ is faultless. He's without fault. He is perfect. Perfect. And so his humility is not because of his character being flawed. His humility is not because of shame and sin that have entered in. He is without sin. He is without shame. He is perfect. His humility is not connected to anything negative about him because there is nothing negative about Christ in that sense. His humility is this, that he was in heaven. He was sat at the right hand of God. And God Himself became incarnate. God Himself left the glory of heaven and was born into this world as a human. Fully man and fully God, in that amazing sense that our heads can't wrap themselves around. But as the passage says, it's like this He emptied Himself. Christ had to empty Himself, He had to take off all that stuff so that He could come to this world. All that glory, all that being, all those things that our minds just cannot comprehend of his deity. And yet, still, he was God. And yet, he was there as man. He was there, found in human form. I mean, isn't that incredible? The absolute humility, the humbling of Christ, of going from there to here. We we try and get an analogy for this and we fail miserably. There's been some people who have sort of done social experiments of very, very wealthy people going into very poor neighborhoods to to live or sleep rough and to to give them an idea of what it's like. And and yes, that could sort of be close-ish, not. Because heaven is sinless. And Christ came to the sin-ridden world. And by taking on this human nature, he was then limiting himself, limiting what he could do as a deity, as the deity, as God. And then as a man, he became obedient to the point of death. And then Paul gets his highlighter out and says, even death on a cross. Cross, the cross, the crucifixion was, was, was a word that you would barely mention in, in first century, polite company. It was horrific. We, we, we all are going to die All all humans are obedient to death. We have no option. The wages of sin is death, so we're all going to die. But the Lord Jesus Christ had never sinned, and he didn't deserve to die. But he took on death. Because as he took on death, he was taking on the sins of his people. Can you imagine he leaves sinless heaven in all its glory to be born in the frailty of a body of a man. And then he takes on the sins of his people. You you cannot get more humbling than that. And he's in total submission to the the will of the Father and and, and he gives his life up to this horrendous death and, and the physicality and the trauma and the suffering of that death doesn't bear thinking about And the physicality and the trauma of Christ's death on the cross and and the pain that we we can bring to our minds is nothing in comparison to the fact that God was metering out his wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his wrath is just pictured in what was going on on the cross and that was nothing in compared to the real suffering that Christ was going through as he bore the sins of his people. And this humility that he showed can only be achieved by pure agape. Love is not proud. And there were those Corinthians, and they were sat round and they were hearing this for the first time, weren't they? And to go back to that Oxford dictionary definition of arrogance, it says to have uh, a revealed or an exaggerated sense of one's own importance. And that's just where the Corinthians were at. They had an exaggerated sense of their own importance with regard to these spiritual gifts. And they were going around with this exaggerated sense that the manifestation of these gifts brought them personally and it made them better and they were proud of these things. And they were proudly using their gifts and they were proudly showing them off and they'd graded them in their importance. And can you imagine how they felt as they thought of love not being proud? I'm sure you don't boast. I'm sure you're not arrogant. Or are we? You see, we have to look in this mirror, don't we? Love is not proud, love does not boast. W- where are we at here? Are we arrogant? Are we puffed up? Have you graded your spirituality against those around you? Do you compare yourself with others like that? Because often we do that from a point of pride. We choose someone a little, Yeah, you know, we're better than them. Are you glad for the opportunity to pray publicly so that you can let people hear how good you are at praying? Are you quick to let people know how good or talented or spiritual you are? And those are things we manifest on the outside, but there's so much stuff that goes on in the inside. Do you feel better than other Christians around you? Even though you may not say it out loud, at the times when you look around and you say like, that Pharisee, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like him or her. I'm not like the Cypriots. I'm not like the Yahoo boys. I don't do this. I don't do that. Or perhaps collectively as a church, we are arrogant in thinking we know better than some of these other churches around about and other fellowships, and we are arrogantly and proud collectively as a church because we think more of ourselves than we should do. Are you worried more about what others think of you than what God thinks of you? Because that is where pride comes in. And we have to remember... That arrogance in your life or pride in your life is a reflection of a lack of love. And that hurt the Corinthians as they saw themselves in the light of that. And we need to look in the light of that and ask ourselves the questions. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant nor rude or rude. And so, moving on from this arrogant, we're coming now to rude. And it's a word that's often used. I mean, we can flippantly say, oh, how rude when someone makes a little bit of a friendly joke at our expense. If someone pushes in the queue, we say, oh, how rude. But this is not the sense of the word here. It's far deeper and far darker. And and the original word would have this meaning to behave indecently, to act improperly, to be rude, to, to, to behave disgracefully and dishonorably. And so six, we see love is not rude. We don't have any record of Christ being rude. and and Some people may look there and say, oh, but he called his mother woman and, and tell us that that's rude. Well, no, it wasn't in that culture and it wasn't in that day and Christ never was rude because Christ never sinned. And Jesus, as we see him in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus consistently treating others with respect, treating others with kindness. Even when he was faced himself with hostility and opposition, even when people were trying to trick him into saying wrong things or trying to trick him to get him into trouble, Christ consistently treated all around with respect and kindness. You see, Jesus showed compassion and love and kindness when cultural rudeness would have been seen as socially acceptable. Now, now what do I mean by that? Last week we saw Christ touch the leper, didn't we? Cultural rudeness would have allowed you not to touch that leper. Cultural rudeness would have allowed you to kept him well away because he was unclean. When the woman was caught in adultery, cultural rudeness would have allowed you to have pointed the finger and, as some people wanted to do, stone and kill the lady. Cultural rudeness would have allowed the ostracizing of that unclean woman who had that issue of blood, who had no hope of being healed and had spent all her money on doctors and was there in the crowd. And cultural rudeness would have just said, no, you're unclean, go away. Cultural rudeness would have allowed for Jesus not to have spoken to that Samaritan woman who'd had four husbands and now was living with a man and had all those problems and all those complications and cultural rudeness would have allowed him to just say, no, that's fine, go away. Love is not rude. Love isn't even culturally acceptably rude. Christ's love shows this compassion. And, and caring in all these situations. Jesus never responded rudely to those who questioned him. Even when they were trying to trick him, he came out with answers, yes, that may have confounded them. But their, contra, contra, uh, the, the, their fights with him, their coming against him, the, the, he, Christ was filled with grace, filled with wisdom. There, there was no... Rudeness. Maybe we think that sometimes in in a social setting we can be forgiven for being rude, possibly. Yeah? Maybe you're in a queue and and someone sort of pushes in and, and starts getting in front of you so you rudely, but it's justifiably rudely, put yourself in front. Or maybe you are working on something and the the hammer that should be hitting the nail hits your thumb and your brain and your mouth go too quickly and out comes some exclusives, some rudeness. Oh, it's understandable that it hurt. Maybe we would forgive someone for muttering rude in those sorts of situations. But there was the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And his road to the cross was being betrayed. His road to the cross was being forsaken. His road to the cross was being abused and beaten and flogged. And now he is hanging on this cross slowly dying in excruciating pain. And maybe if we looked on in that situation and somebody muttered something rude, we would forgive it or at least half expect it. But not Jesus. His his love-filled nature would not let him be rude when he was on the cross in all that intensity of that situation. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, when Jesus is there on the cross and when they are dividing his garments in front of him and casting lots over it, Jesus looks down from that position of agony and pain and impending death and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What would you have said? Or what did you say when you stubbed your toe? Or what did you say when someone bumped into your car? Or what did you say when someone pushed in front of you on the bus? And here is Christ in that worst situation, in the darkest of moments, and he's forgiving. And this is true agape love. Love is not rude. And we have to go to that mirror again, don't we? We have to hold it up to ourselves. And we have to ask the questions. We can just ask the question generically, are you rude? And of course not. Us English people, we're never rude. We're the politest nation in the world, so we like to think. We'll open the door for you, we'll close the door for you, we'll pull the chair out for you, we'll put the chair out. We will queue, we'll queue at our expense. We are polite. But are you rude? You see, I know as an Englishman, I can do those things, but you don't know what I'm thinking about. You don't know that I'm dreaming of a manhole opening up in front of you, so you'll fall, so I'll get to the front of the queue. But is that where you are? You see, we can look beautifully on the outside, but this cuts into our inside. I, I, I imagine you don't go out of your way to be rude. When did you last push into the queue? When did you last say something nasty about somebody and then just caveat it with saying only joking? When did you last roll your eyes? You know the time? Yeah? When did you last mock somebody for their Stupidity. When someone shows you a kindness, do you say thank you? When someone just does their job, do you say thank you? When someone is not so kind to you, do you say thank you? Do you show your appreciation to those who've served or helped you? Are you rude? Because you have to remember that rudeness in our lives is a reflection of lack of love. Remember, rudeness in your life is a reflection of a lack of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And it does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. Paul has already made commentary on this in 1 Corinthians 10 and 23. And there's a passage where he tells the Corinthians to do everything to God's glory. And in verse 24 he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is the opposite of a seeking your own good, isn't it? Seeking the good of your own neighbor. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not It does not insist on its own way. And so we're just going to use that title, Love is Not Self-Seeking. Jesus didn't seek or insist on his own way for, for personal gain or recognition. That's just not where Jesus was. Mark 10, verse 45, as we saw this last week, these words, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man is this great high title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the the climax of his coming to this world was not a self-serving task. He came to serve. And the climax of this servitude, the climax of this selflessness was the giving up of his own life, the giving up of his own life for the ransom of many. It's because love is not self-seeking that we can be here today. It's because this love is not self-seeking we can have a relationship with God because our relationship with God was broken by our sin and our sin deserved the full wrath of God and Christ gave up his life as a ransom against that wrath Christ bore the price He was not self-seeking His primary focus as he came to this world was in fulfilling God's plan and loving humanity and he was ransomed for all who call on his name jesus told his disciples in john 5 19 and it starts with a truly truly which means listen listen or get your highlighter out jesus said to his disciples i say to you that the son can do nothing of his own accord But only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his love here is not self-seeking. His love here does not insist on his own way. His love here is to do the will of the Father. Jesus was not self-seeking. Can you imagine that the celebrity coming here nowadays to do that sort of work... It just doesn't bear thinking about does it? But you can imagine his Instagram profile and and all this thing and his being in the green room and demanding this comfort and that limo and this private jet and all that kind of stuff because they're self-serving and the Lord Jesus Christ was just not self-serving. He had this pure agape love which meant that he was not self-seeking and he was there to do the will of the Father It was out of love to the Father. And this love to the Father meant that he had this love for us. And in John 6, verse 38, he explains it like this, For I have come down from heaven. And as if the disciples said, Why? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Lord Jesus Christ wasn't building his own personal empire. The Lord Jesus Christ was not self-seeking. The Lord Jesus Christ was doing God's will. And this was very, very practically demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ did not insist on his own way. The Lord Jesus Christ knew what was ahead of him. He knew the the pain of the cross. He knew that the wrath of God would be poured out on him. He knew that he would be forsaken by his disciples. He knew that he'd be betrayed by someone that he loved and someone that had been around him for the last three years. He knew all of this. He knew this pain. He knew what was ahead of him, that the pain and the stress was so great upon him. He was sweating drops of blood. He was so stressed in his human nature in that situation. And in Matthew 26, he prays this prayer in verse 39. He fell on his face praying, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will what an example what what a pinnacle of, of this 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 self denying nature Love is not self-seeking. Yes, he could articulate his desire and his concern to his father, but there he is saying, not my will. I'm not self-seeking. I'm not lifting myself up. I want to do your will despite the fact he knew of what was ahead of him, despite the fact that he would prefer not to go through that suffering in that human sense, he says, let this cup pass from me. But his love for the Father and his love for the people prevailed. And believer, you who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior now, it's this ultimate act of self-sacrificial love that secured our salvation. We are able to be in a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because Jesus did not insist on his own way. And so, friends, we have to do it again. We have to turn the light on ourselves. We have to look into the mirror of Corinthians 13 and those verses and that song about love. And we have to ask ourselves another question this morning. Do you insist on your own way? Paul's word to the Philippians help us to apply this and understand what this action of love looks like. Speaking to that church in Philippi, in in, uh, chapter 2, in the second part of verse 2, Paul speaks to them, and he says, having the same love, that's the love of Christ, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Is this what we're able to do as a church family? What is your motivation? Are, are you able to, to count each person more significantly than yourself? Do you look out for the interests of others? Do you insist on your own way? What happens when there's a queue for food? What happens when you come and choose the seat that you want to sit in? What happens when something comes up for offer? Where where are you with this? The only thing that possibly could be true about evolution is the thought of a selfish gene. (laughs) But it's not, it's sinful nature. I have to confess that I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. And those of you that got married, you're smiling and you know what I mean by that. Suddenly you realize there's someone else who you've got to consider. And just as I was coming to terms with my selfishness then, we had our son Noah. And then 24-7 we had someone demanding our time and I really realized how selfish I was. We, we have this default position in our own sinful hearts, friends, to put ourselves first. And there's that clash and there's that fight going on in our lives right now. Those of us that have been saved by grace as Christ came to this world through His loving Father and through the work of the Holy Spirit and as He bought us and purchased us with His love. At the moment of our salvation, as we saw a few weeks back, the gift of salvation and, and a saving gift that we have from the Holy Spirit alongside the faith that allows us to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, we are filled with the love of God. The gift of the Holy Spirit that we all have is being filled with the love of God. And in our lives right now, there is this tension, and there's this fight, and there's this battle going on. We have this love there. And yet we have our own selfish, sinful natures vying for things. And we ask ourselves, That question, do you insist on your own way? And we see Christ's example, and it hurts us. And this morning, we've, we've held up that mirror, haven't we? And we've seen that love is patient and kind. Last week, we saw last week that love does not envy or boast. And this week, we're seeing that it's not arrogant nor rude. And it does not insist on its own way. And I'm sure as you are sat around now, you are feeling a little bit loveless. You are realizing that you have not hit the standard. You realize that you are a little bit condemned There's a little bit that despite who you are and what progress you've made, you are falling short of these standards. And you may be feeling a bit like that despite the spiritual gifts that you have, you are nothing because you haven't got the love that you should have. I want to remind you of how the verse in Philippians 2 starts. In verse 5 it says, have this mind among yourselves. And then there's the hope, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Friends, we can demonstrate this love. We can be this love because it has been Given to us in Christ Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit has poured it out in our lives at our conversion. And yes, we may have put stuff in our lives that have pushed it out or subdued it or grieved the Holy Spirit or whatever. But we do not have to continue in that way and we should not continue in that way. We should have this mind amongst ourselves. And it is, it is yours, it is ours, it is mine in Christ Jesus. It's not something you have to manufacture. You don't get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm going to love today, I'm going to love today, I'm going to love today. It's not going to work. There's no self-help book that's going to do this for you. But what has been done for you is Christ, through love, died on the cross and paid the price for your sins. And at that moment, you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not just give you saving faith. The Holy Spirit poured out God's love into your heart and into your lives. Poured it out. The Holy Spirit's poured it out. So friends, let us pray that it will pour out of us and it will be demonstrated in patience, in kindness. It will be demonstrated in lives that don't envy and don't boast and are not arrogant and are not rude and are not insisting in their own way. And as that happens, friends, we will be the brightest witness we could ever be because that will be so different to the world around us. And within the church family it will be so much more better for us as well. This is possible because it's been something that's been given to us. But most of this morning has been for those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour. And there's some of you that know nothing of this love. And my appeal to you this morning is to think about what you've heard. And Christ's love is patient and is kind. and Because he did not envy and did not boast and was not angry and was not rude and didn't insist on his own way, there is a way of salvation for you. This love is here for you. Christ shed his blood on the cross for man and woman. And this day, if you call upon his name, if you ask for forgiveness, if you take all that mess that you've seen and heard and drop it at him, the Lord Jesus Christ will forgive you because of what's been done. God will accept you because of what Christ has done. And so my prayer is the Holy Spirit opens your heart now and enables you to receive Christ for yourself let's pray